0: You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and Finance to Philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world leading experts on current events and cutting edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor emeritus of information systems at the School of Computing and Information Systems at Singapore Management University, as well as the founding dean of the SMU School of Information Systems. Holding a PhD from Carnegie Mellon University, his latest book is titled Working with AI, Real Stories of Human-Machine Collaboration. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Stephen Miller. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: A pleasure, Adi.
0: Firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research.
1: Well, very briefly, I've been in Singapore 22 years. In my career, I've gone back and forth between um, interesting university environments and real-world industry practitioner environments. Um, I started off as an assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon, doing tremendous amounts of field work, going to look at that time to see how the new generation of computer controlled uh, robots and flexible manufacturing systems were being deployed in factories and expert systems being used in office automation. This goes back to the 80s. Um, I did something a little unusual that most professors don't do. I got myself over to Japan and worked as an apprentice in a Japanese factory. For 30 months, believe it or not, in the engineering division of um, one of the world's great technology companies and then came back and worked for them in Dallas, Texas, as the head of manufacturing engineering in a facility there. Then I did consulting that brought me to Singapore, where I was working for IBM Consulting. SMU was a new university. It just started in year 2000. I joined them at the end of year 2000 as the first employee and founding dean of what was then called the School of Information Systems, what's now called the School of Computing and Information Systems, and um, was very close to industry and applied work. Did that for 13 and a half years, handed it off to the next generation to take over, stayed at the university and was their vice provost of research. Retired myself two-plus years ago, and in that time, worked with um, Tom Davenport, who's spectacular to work with, and we did this book. Uh, I was the co-author, and honestly, Tom had the idea for the book. He He was already starting in his mind. He had this idea of the future of work, but not in the future, now. Examples you can observe now that are illustrative of what you'll see more of in the future, sort of edge cases, you might uh, uh, call them. And that led to this series of stories that led to this book.
0: Okay, so um, your latest book is titled Working with AI, Real Stories of Human-Machine Collaboration. So I wanted to start off by talking about the impact of AI on job losses. So it's extremely common nowadays to look in the newspaper or on TV and hear about how AI is going to replace your job and make us all obsolete. However, in the description you write, quote, this book breaks through both the hype and the doom and gloom surrounding automation and the deployment of artificial intelligence enabled smart systems at work. Management and technology experts Thomas Davenport and Stephen Stephen Miller show that contrary to widespread predictions, prescriptions, and denunciations, AI is not primarily a job destroyer. So for people like me who constantly read headlines about how AI is going to take over all of our jobs, um, can you please tell us why this isn't the case?
1: Okay. What I'm going to do, Adi, is I'm going to combine two bodies of knowledge here. One body of knowledge is what we actually did in the book. And that's sort of a contained thing. I'll explain in a moment. And then there's a lot of work I don't do it myself, but my work is to follow the work of some of the world's best experts on this kind of thing on looking at the best available data about the impacts of technology and automation on um, labor market issues of which job counts is just one part of it. So let me first, I'm going to hit your question head on, but allow me to build it a bit. All right. So what we did in the book was. Um, we'll get examples of, per the title, people working with AI. And by definition, they're partnering with, right? If it was full automation, the person wouldn't be there. Of course, there'd be a supervisor, an overseer. But in all the cases that we had, there are people where the machine is a partner to what they're doing. All right. And that is called augmentation, where the human works with the tool, in this case, an AI enabled tool, and you know modern AI. these are all very current examples, and uh the person continues to do their work. It could be existing work in new ways, or it literally could be new types of work in fact. We observed examples of both. I'll get to that a, a little bit later. So it's important to realize that for the history of technology as applied to how we do our work, not just in recent years, but over decades, over centuries, there's both automation and augmentation. Neither of them are new. They're both existing. We've had automation going back hundreds of years. Augmentation, using tools to amplify what a person does, has an even longer history, obviously. Okay. So, thing to remember number one is we have now AI enabled tools. Okay. The reason I don't just say AI is because in almost every example that we observe and every example that Exist. It's not just AI. It's AI combined with a lot of other digital technologies, even with a lot of conventional IT, with a lot of good old fashioned process reengineering. So AI is a part of it. It's not the totality of it. Okay. And the fact that we could do this book and find 29 examples of augmentation And we could have done two times or five times or 10 times that, you know, just the editor said, look, I only want so many stories to book and only be so long, right? But the fact that we could easily find so many examples of augmentation means that this is important. This is happening too, right? Now, does that mean there won't be full automation as a result of more capable AI tools and more deepening the usage of AI in the workplace. Of course, there'll be some of that, probably more of that. But when we look around, we see many, many more examples of augmentation where people are using the tools to amplify what they can do than automation. So let me sort of tease the audience. And here we are. We're towards the end of the year 2022, right, 2022, and, you know, we all know history has a long duration here, all right? We are the most technologically sophisticated the world has ever been. We use more tools, more computing, more AI-enabled computing and tools than ever now, right? And yet we have more people employed than ever. So obviously there's, you know, uh, sometimes quarterly or yearly blips and COVID and things has, uh, you know, causes a few blips on the radar there. But when you take the longer perspective over a decade, over several decades, there's more people employed than ever, right? And yet there's more technology in the workplace than ever. It is the case, Adi, that in recent years, especially since about 1980 uh, to the current, there have been certain occupational groups where the um, relative share of that occupation in the whole economy, like the percent of the economy that's production workers, has gone down, right? Right. The total number has actually gone up, but the relative proportion has gone down because other areas have grown so much and that area hasn't grown. And why hasn't it grown? Well, there's a lot of factors. There's offshoring and different approaches to sourcing and trade policies, a lot of complicated macro environment things, but automation really is an important factor. So in contemporary history, You know, forget going forward with AI. Let's just take where we are now in the last 10, 20, 30 years. Do we see examples of automation eroding some occupations and reducing their share? Obviously. And that's not new, it's been going on for a long time. But yet there's more people employed than ever. So, how'd that happen? Right? Because there's this simultaneous process of labor displacement, and new job creation. All right. And the new job creation actually happens through a few mechanisms. One is what I'll call the productivity mechanism. You use machines, you use tools, increasingly AI uh, embodied tools, right? And you can work more productively and decrease the price by 5%, but still make a profit. And because of that, there's extra demand. So more people buy it. So you somewhere in that chain, even though you might displace a person with automation, because there's some extra demand, you're going to get some extra job somewhere. Somebody's got to load a box. Somebody's got to deliver something. Somebody's got to do more sort of middle-level processing here and there, whatever, customer service. So there's that effect. But what's actually been more important, Adi, is the number of new types of jobs created in recent decades. So you say, give an example. Let me give an example. You know, electricity goes back to even before the 1900s, right? And the notion of somebody working with an electric as an electrician, well, that's an old job title. I mean, it was new in the 1900s, but obviously in the recent decades, it's a, uh, it's an old job title, but being an electrician who installs solar panels, that's new work. That's, that's a new kind of job title. If you go back to 1940 or 1950, you obviously don't find that job title and. Now you're getting growing numbers of new types of electricians because of all of the sort of new kinds of products and services coming on. And I have to give credit to a fabulous team at MIT. There's uh, several labor economists there. Uh, one of them, David Otter, and a team of others, obviously with uh, collaborators because nobody can do this um, alone. They looked at employment 1940 and recently in 2018, and they looked at all the job table uh, titles, and they compared information in the U.S. Census from the job titles in 1940 to the job titles in the subsequent decades. And simplifying a lot of things on what was obviously a very complicated analysis, what they found is in the year 2018, There's obviously a lot more people employed than in the year 1940. But a lot of those people employed in 2018 are in job titles that did not exist in the 1940 census. So why is this important to the situation with AI now? So their conclusion is that new work is much more important than people realize by new work, new kinds of job titles, new kinds of tasks, new kinds of, well, you combine tasks into jobs and, you know, you, you get new work and you get enough people doing this kind of jobs, you get new occupations, right? So we've simultaneously been living with the displacement effect, but up to now, the innovation effect that has led to new work has um resulted in net job gain now it has also resulted in polarization of the workforce right this goes beyond the book but i'm going to link this back to the book in a moment in occupations where there's a lot of use of augmentation where the person and the machine work together professional type of task, um, uh, technician type of task, uh, manager and executive type of task, there's been a lot of job growth. There's a strong association between using technology, including AI technology, for augmentation and job growth. And in portions of the economy where there's been very heavy full automation, there's been an erosion of those occupations, all right? So the fact that we could do this book, and without even trying hard, we we had a bias sample. We were looking for examples of people working with AI. So we weren't doing a random sample. We we purposely were doing a bias sample. Bias doesn't always mean bad, just means the, the, the sample you're looking at is, uh particular properties. In this case, we wanted a sample of people working with AI. And the point is we could easily find that. And the fact that there's so many examples of that, um, you know there's still issues of automation to deal with, but the fact that there's so many examples of augmentation gives us some hope that there can be this other wheel turning in the economy of people using AI-based tools to do existing things in better ways, and to do new kinds of things, because that's the key to creating new work. So my summary point, point, uh, and now I'll come back to your next question, is the fact that we could create these rich portraits of, auto, of augmentation, not automation, augmentation, that they're all over the place. They're not just concentrated in one or two industries or jobs. They're in a wide range of industries and a wide range of jobs. Um, It it, it gives, it's a positive sign. It's a good hope. We still have issues to deal with in those areas where people are going to go for automation because the people displaced are not necessarily the same as the people for whom there's new opportunity as a result of using AI-based tools to augment their work. There there are dislocation issues that that, uh, can't be wished away. Uh, But there's more augmentation than people appreciate. And, And the big lesson is automation is not the only alternative. Let me repeat that. Automation is not the only alternative.
0: Okay. Um, so I, I think, uh, a couple of things there are that, I mean, that, that answer made a lot of sense. And you answered sort of the main thing that I was, I was struggling with throughout, throughout your answer there, um, in your summary, which is that, I mean, yes, it, it is true that, uh, over the past few decades, we have seen, you know, an increasing integration of technology into the workplace. Um, We have seen areas where there are less, uh, you know, there are less jobs, manufacturing, coal mining, etc. And those people have been displaced. But at the same time, we've seen overall employment rise, we've seen a number of jobs rise. Um, and, and all those things. So, you know, my my only concern there was, well, what about the displacement issues? You know, the coal miner that was displaced? You know, sure, we created, you know, 10 new jobs for computer programmers in Silicon Valley that didn't exist right. 50 years ago. But, you know, what about these? That that doesn't mean that these 10 coal miners that just lost their job are going to go well, become programmers I, in Silicon I, Valley.
1: Adi, you you raised an issue and you have an international audience. You know, I'm aware you're in New Zealand. This podcast will go internationally. And the situation is different in different countries. It's what has been more pronounced in the United States than in any other country. And this is an unfortunate circumstance to be sort of the the most pronounced in this way, is that there has indeed, when you look at the employment statistics uh, since 1940 and especially since 1980, there's been a hollowing out of jobs in middle pay, middle pay level jobs like laborers, production, some kinds of um, back office type clerical and administrative, right? And what's happened is there's been a tremendous growth in jobs that are higher paid jobs where many of the people are college educated and beyond, Right. The other place where there's been a big growth has been in low paid jobs, which have been, you know, your gig economy, the service workers, a lot of personal service, people who might do your hair, who might do your nails, people who are healthcare attendants, uh, uh, people who take care of grounds, gardens, you know, cut the weeds. Obviously, in all of these personal services, there's a super small niche that do it very high-end and they're high-paid, but the preponderance of people are in low-paid jobs. So we've we've had this bifurcation in the U.S. Now, the key thing to note is there are other countries in the world that have uh, made great use of new technology to drive productivity and innovation in their economies. Germany would be one and several of the other European countries. And the polarization of the income distribution is not anywhere as stark as in the United States. And the reason that's important, Adi, is it's not the technology. It's the choices of how individual companies how institutions and how governments choose to use the technology. And the big concern, of course, is looking forward, right? What about the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Because undeniably, our tools are getting more capable as a result of AI enablement. All right. The AI is not magical. They're tools. Tools have limits. Anything that's real has limitations to it. So let's think of AI as machines and tools. But we are pretty substantially increasing the range of what we can get our AI-enabled tools and machines to do. Okay? So that raises the question of, will the pattern in the future be different than up to now? Even, Even if it's the same up to now with a lot of, new job creation, we're going to have dislocation, some people left out. How do we deal with that? How, how does every employer, how does every government unit at the city, provincial and national level choose to deal with that? How do we align tax policies? For example, in some countries, there are benefits to replacing people with machines because machines are taxed less than if you have humans on your payroll where you incur payroll taxes. It differs country by country. But the point is, in some countries, there's actually incentive to automate and disincentive to grow your employment payroll. Well, that's not a function of machines. That's a function of humans and policies. So there are some people who are sort of convinced, I know what's going to happen per this AI stuff. It's inevitably going to lead to um, not just the patterns of displacement we've seen in, in prior decades, but it's going to be really different than before, and we're not going to have the offsetting job creation. The, the, what, what we know, and from the best minds that have looked at this idea, is the future is not written. It could go either way. We could use our new AI-enabled capabilities and the augmentation to address problems in ways we've never done before to create new kinds of work, new kinds of opportunities in ways beyond what has ever been possible, right? These tools have incredible amplification. Uh, abilities, And you're starting to see it in this. The sciences are all using it in amazing ways in an augmentation form, by the way, um, versus the world of automation, you know, which does have direct displacement and erosion. So this is a future that it's it, it's not that you can divine this future. It's it's the future you want to create. Right. Every team leader who's, you know, working with five other people in a company and, okay, we're going to, of course, whatever application we have to do, you know, just part of everyday work. Of course, you'll use uh, whatever appropriate AI methods to further enhance whether we're making a a recommendation, a prediction, planning and simulation, um, uh, some kind of language understanding. You know, we're going to just use these AI methods and there's a wide range of them just as part of our everyday tool set and combine it with all the other digital tools we use. Right. But full automation is not the only alternative. There's the augmentation alternative. And you'll say, well, gee, Steve, you know, people have to be business driven. You know, they're going to do the thing that's best for the business. Keep in mind. It's still the case and will continue to be the case that when you automate, of course, you get the consistency. Of course, you get the efficiency. And with AI enabled automation, you, you you make it a little bit more adaptable, even a bunch more adaptable. But when you build automation systems and large scale automation systems, they're still limited in their flexibility. They always have been, they are, and that will continue to be the case. Augmentation is very adaptable. Augmentation works well for experimentation. Augmentation, using these tools to amplify what people can do, works very well in situations where you sort of need to change. Oh, my goodness, for geopolitical reasons, every supply chain in the world shifts you know, we got to think of stuff where there's no game plan for. We need to do a lot of exploration, a lot of experimentation. I don't mean the scientists, I mean the everyday business people. And augmentation is much more effective for that. Automation's at a disadvantage for that. So it's not automation versus augmentation. We need both. We need the automation to drive the productivity, but without the augmentation, We'll never change. We'll never get the innovation. So the challenge of our time is given that AI is going to supercharge both our ability to do automation and augmentation. There's no future that's predetermined. It's where do we want to take it? That's the message. And the, the book is a, the book is a ray of light in the sense that Automation, not automation, excuse me, augmentation really does work well and is widely applicable. So don't, don't forget that as part of the toolkit.
0: Okay, well, we only have about a minute or two left. So to finish off, I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, all the case studies that you have in the book, they're extremely diverse, extremely wide ranging. Um, so can you tell us a bit about the process that you use to identify relevant case studies and the methodology that you use to understand the, the implications of AI involvement? So tell us a little bit about just your background, your process in writing this book.
1: Okay, that, it's a great question. It's a fair question. These are like case studies. They're, they're not like this rigorous research thing where in advance you plan your sample and all that kind of stuff. You have to work with business enterprises and in a few cases, government enterprises to get these stories, right? They have to let you do them. So it is opportunistic. Tom, because of his enormous reputation, you know, he's got these tremendous uh, contact networks because he's been writing stories about how people use sort of the new things that corporations are doing with IT. You know, he's been interviewing people for 30 plus years and writing up stories. So he's a vast network in Singapore, because I've been here for so long with government with industry, you know, I have a very deep network and, uh, you know, I could sort of have an idea of who to ask and whatnot. And we did have to get permission from the government, uh, one or two government cases, and most of them are private sector cases. Um, but I would I would have to say they never edited our work for inconvenient truths. You know, they they, they were pretty open. Now, we asked them to interview people involved in successful applications of working with AI. they might have had five other examples that were unsuccessful, but, you know, we didn't talk about that. We only looked at the successful examples. That's okay. That's all we wanted to look at to show that this is indeed possible across such a wide range of settings. And that's the key point. We experienced augmentation, both in terms of doing existing work in new ways, and sometimes entirely new job roles across a wide range. When I say a wide range of settings, I mean, you know, um, sales and business development, product development, administrative operations, customer product support, manufacturing and other production, you know, a wide range of settings. So it was really through the personal contact networks. Tom, I got to give him credit. He did 21 of the stories. I did eight of the stories. Uh, that's because he works so much faster than I do. But it was really through our personal contacts that we were able to get these stories.
0: All right. Um, well, I mean, that's, that's really interesting to hear. You know, obviously a lot of people are, are probably going to be reading all these case studies and that you have in the book and, and, you know, wondering, well, these are all so amazing case, such amazing case studies. They're so diverse. You know, how, how does the person go about, you know, getting access to all these people and, and actually, um, you know, collecting this data? So, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear a little bit more about the methodology and background. But anyway, um, unfortunately we are out of time for today. Um, so I'm just going to say thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Miller.
1: Adi uh, thank you and Adi if you could give me one takeaway for today's discussion what was the takeaway that really resonated with you
0: well i think the the biggest thing that resonated with me was the extent to which um, we hear you know over an oversimplified narrative um when, when it comes to sort of the news, it comes to the media, oftentimes things are boiled down to one clickbaity headline, um, you know, because they want to get as many clicks as possible. And so what you'll hear is say a new study finds that AI is going to destroy 90% of jobs. Um or, or something like that. And you know, there's there's very little mention to can we stop it? Um, is there a policy, you know, um is there a policy underlying the the impacts that are going on here? I think one of the most interesting things you mentioned today was the the sort of tax incentives, how they're often structured against um human employment and, and in favor yeah. of, of of getting AI. So a lot of those things, um, you know, we we, we really don't hear um to to a great extent and so for someone like you and and tom who've gone into you know 30 odd case studies and found out you know what there's is this aug- automation and augmentation difference they're not the same thing um and you know uh, it, it's not that they're going to replace us they may actually become you know our our friends in the workplace and we might w- work with them so oh. yeah those those oh. are sort of the takeaways here
1: It's not either or, it's going to be both, but we want to make sure that we get our fair share of the augmentation, and we can do so if everybody at their micro level and sphere of influence makes that part of the program. And it's not for charity. It's because it's the key to innovation.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, uh, thank you everyone for listening to the Economics Review, and as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.